I want to begin this morning uh, with, with a bit of a personal confession. Um, Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And as much as I try and live that out, uh, there are a few set times a year when I consistently fail miserably at it. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about our church picnics, and uh, specifically that fateful moment when the potluck has been consumed and, uh, and what can only very loosely be described as a volleyball game begins to form uh, around the volleyball net. Now, to be sure, there is something beautiful about this event. Volleyball has this unique sort of power to bring together young and old, uh, men and women, boys and girls, um, veterans and novices, uh, Westillians who otherwise might not interact with one another uh, very often and leave everyone smiling. It's a really, it really is a beautiful thing. If you th- my, my mic is on, right? Y'all can hear me? Okay, good. It really is a beautiful thing if you think about it. If you think about it. But if you see it, there's nothing beautiful about it at all. Um, if you see it, it's, it's actually a hideous perversion of a beautiful thing. A, a once graceful, noble sport quickly digresses into a series of movements that defy all athletic logic, not to mention the rules of the sport. Every rule of the sport is broken. Worst of all, because of my love, being well attested for volleyball amongst you, I am inevitably invited, nay expected, to join in on this mockery of the the game that I love so much. Now, perhaps I'm exaggerating the point just a little bit for effect, but there is a deeper point here that I want to make with this analogy, and it's just this. How you and I do anything in life, your performance, is driven by your assessment of the purpose of that thing, which is ultimately driven by your perspective, your view of the thing itself. Let me say that again while you write it down in your bulletins. Your performance is driven by your purpose, is driven by your perspective. Consider volleyball. How do you do it? Ugly. You do it ugly, like this, right? Why? Well, because you're there to socialize. You're there to have a good time, maybe even to have a good laugh at yourself. And why is that your purpose for being there? Well, because of your perspective on the sport itself. You view volleyball as a casual recreational pastime, well-suited for biannual church picnics, and that's about it. Whereas for me, volleyball is a passion. It's a borderline obsession. I was playing last week when it was 108 degrees out. That's, and, and so the purpose for me is to master it. Yes, it is a social outlet, even an evangelistic outlet for me. I play to stay in shape. Uh, I play because I do have a lot of fun. But truthfully, I really only have fun and enjoy it when I'm playing well. When I play the game the way it's meant to be played, the way it deserves to be played, I have a lot of fun. Why Why I play drives how I play. I play to play well, and so I do. The question I want to ask us this morning is, how do we pray? How do we pray? And, and now it might sound odd at first, even sacrilegious perhaps, to suggest that one's prayers could be ugly. Right? I mean, if prayer is just talking with God, that's always a beautiful thing, right? Well, in theory, of course it is, but so too is volleyball. 
We've all had conversations that we described later as a good talk. You've said that before, right? We've also had conversations that we walked away from and said that did not go well, right? And so how about our prayers? How, how, how will we even begin to assess the quality of our prayers? Well, in some ways, that's exactly what we've been trying to do these past six weeks as we've walked through our Simple Prayer Sermon Series. We've learned from God's Word and from Gary's teaching that we are called to pray in order by sermon, vulnerably, boldly, humbly, prophetically, faithfully, and missionally. But that means by contrast then that we're called not to pray, uh, biblically, we're called not to pray reservedly, timidly, pretentiously, complacently, anxiously, or missionlessly. Gary even gave us some specific examples of ugly prayers. God be with us this week. God be with us this week. Asking an omnipresent God to be with us is like asking your pet cat to be feline this week. There's not an alternative. Right? It's in his nature. It's essential. And, and, and we're, I, we don't say that to mock or belittle or judge anyone's prayers. Rather, Scripture says that it's our job as your pastors, as, as your teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all attain to maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, until your prayer life and my prayer life are as full and mature as Jesus Christ himself, then my job and Gary's job is to keep discipling the church to equip us for ministry. And so I ask you this morning, what ministry is more important to the church? What ministry does the world need from us today more? And do we need for ourselves in our own hearts and lives more than that of prayer? have to be discipled in this area. Grow up into maturity. And as we've seen thus far, Scripture has a tremendous amount to teach us about what that means, about how to pray. In this series, we've heard prayers from David, Solomon, Elisha, the humble tax collector, even a few prayers from Jesus himself. But this morning, if we could look at only one passage for instruction on how we ought to pray, there can be no doubt about where we ought to turn in our Bibles, right? And so let's do that together now. Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. You can follow along on the screen. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word? And let's let the master himself, Jesus himself, coach us together this morning. Luke's version of this passage gives us a bit more context here. We're told that the disciples straight up asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And this is Jesus' response. This is important stuff. Would you read his words aloud together with me this morning? Let's read it together. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. They may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Uh, We thank you this morning for prayer. 
Father, we thank you for conversation, for communion with you, the almighty God of the universe. Father, we desire for our prayer lives to be better, our conversations to be richer, our communion and intimacy to be sweeter. Would you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open your word to us and open the eyes of our hearts and minds to see and hear it afresh, Father. Teach us as only you can to pray. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior and perfect model for all of life, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people agreed by saying, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to be spending the next four Sundays together immersing ourselves in this most simple yet most profound of all prayers in Scripture. You know it as the Lord's Prayer, although it might better be labeled the Disciples' Prayer, because after all, it wouldn't make much sense for Jesus, the sinless Savior, to be praying, forgive us our debts for himself. It's a prayer he gives us to pray. Right? Regardless, this prayer is undisputedly the most important in church history. Within a century of Jesus' death, it was prayed three times a day by every believer in every corner of Christendom. Restricted exclusively to Christians because, like communion, it was considered so holy. The Reformation's Synod of Bern would call it the true Christian prayer and the water pail with which such great grace is drawn from the fountain of Jesus Christ and poured into the heart. I love that word picture. It is the culmination of the Westminster Catechism whose final 11 affirmations are all grounded in this prayer. Later in his life, Martin Luther would have this to say of the Lord's Prayer. To this day, I suckle at the Lord's Prayer like a child, and as an old man, eat and drink from it and never get my fill. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it the perfect prayer, the quintessence of prayer. And most recently, John MacArthur has said, in fewer than 70 words, we find a masterpiece of the infinite mind of God, who alone could compress every conceivable element of true prayer into such a brief and simple form, a form that even a young child can understand, but the most mature believer cannot fully comprehend. So, everyone has to pay attention this morning. Most immature child and the most mature believer. Our focus today is primarily on the context of the prayer itself. But even here, in verses 5 through 9, Jesus is going to teach us something absolutely foundational about the nature of prayer. And I want you to think about it through the lens of volleyball, all right? How you pray is dictated by what prayer is to you, which is defined by your view of God himself. So here in this passage, Jesus introduces us to four distinct types of prayers that are prayed by four very different types of people. So I want to dive in and examine each in turn. Category one. The first category of prayer is subtle. It's really only implied in the passage. Jesus opens verse five with the carefully worded, and when you pray, which suggests to me two things. First of all, that there's at least hypothetically a time when one might not be in prayer. It's possible not to pray. But secondly, that prayer itself is not optional for his disciples. It's not if, but when. So with this one phrase, and when you pray, Jesus simultaneously both takes for granted that his followers will pray, even as he implicitly recognizes that others may not pray at all. So there's your first negative example that we've got to learn from this morning. Atheist Pray never to be autonomous because God is irrelevant. Let me say that again. Atheists pray never in order to be autonomous 
because God to them is irrelevant. It stands to reason, I think, that if one doesn't pray, it's either because he deems God too distant to care, too rigid to be affected, or too non-existent, too fictitious to matter. God is either inaccessible, stubborn, or a fairy tale. In any case, God is irrelevant. This is functional atheism. And Scripture informs us elsewhere about the purpose that undergirds this atheism, the primary reason that atheists are atheists. It has little to do with philosophical arguments, with scientific evidence, with observable evil, or even with personal experience. No, the main reason, according to Scripture, that people choose not to believe in God is so that they can stay one. Belief in a governing, sovereign sovereign God at the center of the universe is always accompanied by the massively inconvenient truth and consequence that I now no longer get to be that. Right? He dethrones me. And Scripture teaches us that until God gives you eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see, just how in need of that dethroning we are, and just how good his lordship and his rule is, we come into this world from birth with everything in us, every fiber of our being, instinctively hating this idea of anyone other than us being God. It's the reason Satan got kicked out of heaven pre-Genesis 1, Here, Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. It's the reason Adam and Eve ate the fruit and got kicked out of the garden in the first place. What was Satan's temptation to them? God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. It's the reason all of humanity together built the Tower of Babel to have a city and a tower with its top in the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves, trying to build ourselves literally to heaven. And that is all just in the first 11 chapters of Scripture. And the rest of the story of Scripture and the rest of the story of humanity is one example after the next of us trying to usurp God's throne hating him for not letting us be God. Listen to how Jesus himself puts it. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Did you catch that? Why did so many in his day hate Jesus? Was it because he uh, refused to perform miracles? No. It's because he did them. Right? It's because he proved that he was God, which also proves that you and I are not, which we hate. Right? And so we crucified him. We hung him on a tree. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Finally, in Luke 19, but it's, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's why atheists don't pray. True prayer, as we'll see two Sundays from now, always recognizes, relinquishes, requests, and rejoices in the hope and the knowledge that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done, not mine. That's true prayer. That's what it does. But that requires a regenerated heart. That requires eyes that have been spiritually unblinded to be able to pray in that way. And until then, every part of us cries out, 
we don't want this man to reign over us. <clears throat> I just finished watching uh, Breaking Bad. That, maybe that is the confession that I should have started this morning with. It is um, a rough show to be sure, if you know anything about it. Um, and so while I can't in good conscience officially as your pastor recommend it to you, um, I will say this. I don't know of a more timely, important, culturally relevant show in the world we live in today than Breaking Bad. It's basically a modern-day depiction of the end of the book of Judges slash the beginning of the 21st century America today. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Judges 21, 25. That's what the show is all about. It's, it's about a friendly high school chemistry teacher, Walter White, who gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and turns to cooking methamphetamine to pay for his medical bills and try and leave his family with a little nest egg when he's gone. But it is as compelling an argument as I've ever seen against the intellectual bankruptcy of the moral relativism that pervades and rules our day. This utterly insane notion that we can all just do what's right in our own eyes. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. And that somehow the world will still be okay. It just exposes that for what it is. It's a graphic billboard for absolute truth. This is what happens when man is truly autonomous, a God unto himself, when he's thrown into just the wrong set of circumstances. Gradually over time, one tiny moral compromise after another, Mr. Rogers will inevitably become Scarface. And here's the most profound theological exchange in the whole series. Walt is in the wait, uh, MRI waiting room, and this guy strikes up a conversation with him, and here's how it goes. The guy says, for me, that's been the biggest wake-up call. Letting go, giving up control. Cancer is cancer. It's like they say, man plans, God laughs. And Walt replies, that is such baloney. But he didn't say fudge, right? You can never give up control. Live life on your own terms. I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. Right from the start, it's a death sentence. That's what they always tell you. Well, guess what? Every life comes with a death sentence, but until then, who's in charge? Me. That's how I live. Listen to me this morning. Prayer is God's number one most effective weapon against the lie of personal autonomy. Against the lie that I can do it on my own, that I have the right to do it on my own. And it's my life. That is the origin of all other sin, and prayer is the antidote. Because prayer by its very nature recognizes God's existence, his centrality, and his sovereignty over us. So here's a very simple, practical, but perhaps convicting application question for you this morning. And you can write these down as well in your bulletins if you want as we go through each. Do you pray? Do you pray? We'll get to the quality in a, in a minute, but let's just address the quantity for a second. Remember, as a follower of Jesus, it's not if, but when. And Jesus, there's an expectation there for us. And not because God loves rules, but because God loves relationship. Prayer is quality time spent with God, and it's one of his primary love languages. Don't deprive him of that. Don't deprive yourself of that. Pray. Right? 
Don't live your life as a functional atheist. If you are not consistently praying, not just throughout the week, throughout the day, I promise your default tendency will always be to slip back into this mindset and, and, and the belief in the lie of personal autonomy. It's our sin nature, Romans 7. It's our sin nature. You will begin to functionally operate as your own God. We desperately rely on prayer. God built us to pray. He designed us that way to ensure that we remain in this place of constant recognition of him and dependency on him. And so Paul commands us, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. Point number two, the religious pray publicly to be seen because God is useful. The religious pray publicly to be seen because God is useful. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Remember, the how is driven by the why and the who. Jesus isn't primarily concerned here with how they pray. Standing in the synagogues, publicly on the street corners. I mean, after all, we see Jesus himself praying publicly throughout his ministry. No, the, the bigger issue here is not the how, but the why. The why of, of these religious hypocrites' prayers. What it says about them who they believe God is, the why and the who, who God is to them. They do it to be seen by others. They treat prayer as a sort of social currency, and insofar as they do that, God himself becomes a means to an end. They treat God in a utilitarian fashion. He's a means to an end. See, we've got to understand contextually here that for these first century Jews that Jesus is addressing, religion was everything to them. The religious elite were the societal elite. I've said it before in past sermons, I was born in the wrong era. Right? Religious leaders in that day had it made in the shade. Right? So there had to be this great temptation amongst the people, and especially their leaders, towards hypocrisy, towards using one's faith as a means to an end, uh, to desire to be seen as pious by others, and along the way to begin to treat God as nothing more than a stepping stool for climbing the social ladder. That's what God gets reduced to. Now, I know what you're thinking, so let me fast forward us back to 2017 now. Maybe you're thinking, uh, Will, uh, maybe in case you hadn't noticed, maybe you need to like, get outside the walls of the church a little bit more, but um, for the rest of us Christians today who aren't pastors, uh, we're not exactly getting promoted for our faith anymore. Like Monday through Saturday, I'm not winning any awards or bonus points or promotions for my thriving prayer life. And maybe you feel like the opposite is actually true in our society, and there's probably some truth to that. But let me just push into that a little bit this morning and challenge it and ask you to take a closer look with me and ask yourself, are there subtle ways in which you really do receive tangible, earthly rewards for your faith and might perhaps even be unconsciously motivated by those rewards, much like these first century hypocrites. Let me give you just a few possible examples to consider. First, family. For many of us, not all, I know, but many of us, 
whether society at large rewards us, we were still raised in a family where faith was important. And so faith for us is an important mark of what it means to belong, not so much to God's family, but to our family of origin. It gives us acceptance and belonging with those closest to us. How about parenting? All right, think again about Breaking Bad. Devoid of absolute truth, and that's what our faith offers us, absolute truth. The prospect of trying to parent today in an age where the prevailing mindset is, who am I to impose my morals on you, even with your kids, your toddlers, much less your teenagers, that should be enough to send any parent today into a deep, dark spiral of depression for the next 18 plus years. Right, it should be. Right? And so our faith helps prevent, it serves this pragmatic function for us as parents. It, it helps prevent our homes from devolving into this full-on Lord of the Flies situation. Right? How about community? Our faith comes complete with not only the option for, but the expectation of fellowship and community with other like-minded believers to fill that inner sense of longing for belonging that we all have. Our faith provides us with ready-made opportunities for friendships with good people. That's a beautiful thing. Power. Let's get, let's get really raw and honest this morning. Within the church, God instructs us to appoint leaders, and faith is the litmus test that we use for doing that. And with leadership comes power. And we would be totally naive to think that there is not the possibility of, say, the temptation if Satan has anything to say about it for those of us in leader, leadership positions in the church to use our faith as a sort of currency that buys us authority and power. That happens every day all, all around churches in, in, in our country. Reputation. Even in an increasingly faithless culture, I would, I would say that Christians are still the nominal majority in this country, and I would contend that in most pockets of our society, we still enjoy the benefit of generally being more well thought of than the alternative, right? You still can't be elected president of the United States without at least claiming to be a Christian. That's something. Security. I saw a poster once in a Christian bookstore that said, Jesus is my life insurance policy. No premiums. Full coverage, payout is eternal life. And there's something absolutely true and, and great, and, and, and there's hope and peace in the knowledge that our salvation is secure and our spot in heaven is saved. But I have to believe that Jesus wants more from us, wants more out of the relationship than to just be thought of as some sort of cosmic deductible payment for us. As a get-out-of-jail, get-out-of-hell-free card. See, it's not that any of these benefits of faith in Christ are inherently bad in and of themselves, any more than praying in public is bad. The question for us this morning is, where does our motivation ultimately come from? Fill in the blank with me. I identify with Jesus because blank. There's your second question, your application point. I identify with Jesus because blank. Write it down and fill it in this morning. Be brutally honest. I won't ask you to do anything I won't do myself. I'll start, all right? Here are just a few of the examples of answers from various phases of my life. As a child, I identified with Jesus to win my parents' approval. Hey, Mom. My mom's on the front row. <clears throat> As a teenager, I identified with Jesus to assuage my guilt about all the sin in my life, 
even without any intention of actually repenting of it, and paradoxically to also give me a standard by which I could also judge and condemn others around me and feel better about myself. As a college student, I identified with Jesus to fit in with the right crowd, to be well thought of, and to get nice quality girls. Hey, babe. My (laughs) wife's on the front row, too. As as a post-grad, I identified with Jesus to get a job. Even today, I I regularly have to check myself to make sure that I am not identifying with Jesus out of some sort of misguided attempt to sway him to provide my family with an extra measure of protection. Now, I know that theologically that's not how this works, but it's some t- if I'm really honest at times, I still struggle with this, this temptation to, to think about and to treat my relationship with God like some sort of currency with him, right? That I know he's sovereign. Right? And, I, and I figure in the back of my mind, it really can't hurt to be in good standing with the one who is able to make sure that with the next thunderstorm, that giant tree in our front yard doesn't fall through my, my daughter's bedroom. That's a temptation. That's a motive. Instead of loving God for God's sake. How about you? When I ask you this morning, why are you here? Don't go running for the doors, but why are you here? Would you be as honest with yourself as I was this morning? Are you here because unconsciously somewhere deep down you believe God's going to love you more? Are you here because you think he's going to bless you more? Are you afraid that God's going to be angry and vengeful if you're not here? Are you here for the coffee and donuts? For the free babysitting? You picked the wrong Sunday for that one. There are lots of good reasons to be in church and to have faith and to identify with Christ. But there's only one right one. There's only one right one. I want, to, I want you to know that we're glad you're here this morning, whatever the reason. Maybe God needed you to be here to, to be convicted of your motives. I don't know. But don't leave. Whyever you walked in, whyever you walked in this morning, don't walk out a religious hypocrite. Don't leave this morning without getting real with God about the rewards that you're here seeking. He knows already. I mean, just be honest with yourself about it. If it's anything other than the reward of relationship itself with a good God, a good Father, I encourage you to pray about that this morning. Confess it to him. Give that to him. Bring it to him and ask God to recenter you on himself. Point number three, doubters pray anxiously to be heard because God is untrustworthy. Doubters pray anxiously to be heard because God is untrustworthy. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Once again, The problem here isn't so much with how these polytheists were praying, their excessive verbosity, right? Because again, we're told that Jesus himself prayed in great length on several occasions. He prayed all night long in Luke 6, uh, 12. No, the real issue here is with their their prayers, not the how, but the rationale behind, the why that fuels the prayers. Consider the historical context Here's one commentary. Jesus' warning here reflects the common pagan practice of repeating an extensive list of names of gods, thinking that they could get the correct name and pronounce it correctly, 
if they could do that, they could manipulate the god. It was also common to utter nonsense syllables and magic incantations. These are not prayers of worship or intercession, but self-centered prayers that try to control the gods. See, here's the thing. The gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman pantheon were notoriously unpredictable, arbitrary, and capricious. They rewarded and punished on a whim without any reason or provocation. That's what they were known for doing. They created whole worlds, worlds, and they started wars out of greed, lust, pettiness, and sheer boredom. That's the gods that they're used to praying to. And so it's no wonder that they were not to be trusted. Right? These gods are, are not to be trusted. No wonder that, that there arose entire industries in their day, in the ancient world, built around the purpose of placating, of even bribing these gods into acting justly and benevolently. These gods are a far cry from the God of the Bible. The God who promises, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. The God who promises to work all things together for good for his beloved children. The author of every good and perfect gift in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, no unpredictability, no arbitrariness, no flying off the handle or acting on a whim. Right? Everything is purposeful, equitable, and ultimately for our good. That's what we can trust with our God. I heard this powerful illustration in a sermon once, and I'll warn you, it's a little um, intense, and so if your kids are like the only ones still paying attention at this time, maybe just earmuff them for a second. Imagine you're walking down a dark alley late at night in East St. Louis. Probably not the best idea, by the way, but just play along for the sake of the illustration. You hear a noise at the back of the alley, and you look up, and from a distance you can distinctly make out a dark, shadowy figure of a man holding a knife hunched over a body, laying lifeless beneath him. What do you do? For some of y'all, you're like, I unholster and tell him to get ready to meet his maker. And praise the Lord for you. We've got a security team here at the church. We'd love to talk to you about that. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I scream like a little girl, and I run as fast as I can and call 911. Either way, we're on the same page. There's nothing good about this situation, right? Nothing good about this situation. Now, imagine with me a different scenario. You're walking down the hall at Mercy Hospital. You hear a noise. You look up through this tiny little glass window, and you peek in and see another man, this time in medical scrubs and a surgical mask. He's holding a knife. He's bent over a body laying lifeless beneath him. What do you do this time? You don't call in the cavalry this time, right? Why not? Because how you respond and why you respond that way ultimately depends on who it is that you're dealing with. So let me ask you this morning, who is God to you? See the man in the back alley or see the doctor? Who is God to you? When life is overwhelming and you feel like you're under the knife, who's holding it? Who is he to you? Is he unpredictable, capricious, petty, vengeful? Or do you know, can you trust that God is good all the time? And all the time, God is good.
me give you a, a more lighthearted example this morning. Ellery, our daughter, is still only 18 months old now. You heard her cry amen at the end of the one song prayer. Uh, she's only 18 months old, but we diagnosed her quite some time ago with what I call SWC syndrome. That's strong-willed child syndrome. In other words, she's my daughter. And uh, she's, also, she's also very mature for her age. Uh, and so uh, that means that we've decided, she's decided to expedite the whole terrible twos thing. Because why wait to have the fun, right? So she started this thing during mealtime where, like, as she's getting lifted into the high chair, she's already, like, pointing and telling us exactly what we need to be feeding her. She's very smart, and so even though she's gotten by without having to learn a ton of words, she knows exactly where everything is in the kitchen, and so everything's that, 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 you know, that. And um, when she doesn't want something, it's ah, ah, right? Now, being... The intellectual that I am and the first-time parent that I am, I try and appeal to her a better sense of reason. <laughs> I, I'll, say, I'll say, Ellery, Ellery, don't you want to grow up to be big and strong and healthy? And she, she'll actually think about it for a second, and my girl's sharp, and she'll think about it, and she'll nod. Uh-huh. I think she really understands me. I mean, don't you? She understands. <laughs> I'm convinced. <clears throat> And then I'll say, and, 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 and baby, don't you trust that mama and dada, that we know what food is best for you to, to, to grow you up to be big and strong and healthy? And she'll think about it again, and she'll nod. And I'll say, well, then can you eat some peas, please? She'll say, ah, ah. Right. And so then we put on veggie tails, and she zones out and eats whatever we want her to. So, yeah, don't judge us. Don't judge us unless you've got a parent, uh, and you're, you're a parent that struggles with SWC as well. Now, I, I wonder, in all seriousness this morning, I, I do wonder, I wonder if that's how some of our prayers sound to God. Da, 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 eh, eh, right? Is that how some of our prayers sound to God? And God tries to reason with us, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust that Abba, that Dada, knows best? That he cares for you? That before you call, I will answer, Isaiah 65. That no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84. That not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. That even the hairs on your head are numbered. So fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows, Matthew 10. Fear not, doubt not, worry not, he says. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you, First Peter tells us. Did you notice that Peter doesn't say, Cast all your needs on him. He already knows them better than we do. He knows what we need and he cares. Peter says we're better off just casting our anxieties, our doubts, our insecurities, our hang-ups, and simply trusting him. Simply trusting him. Why? Because point number four, because children pray intimately to be with because God is Father. Children pray intimately to be with because God is Father. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father. Abba, Dada. His identity as our good, perfect, trustworthy, heavenly Father and our identity as his beloved, adopted children 
together form not only the foundation of all prayer, but the foundation of all faith. J.I. Packer puts it this way, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Listen, I apologize that I have run myself out of much time this morning to qualify this father language and imagery for us. It seems more and more mandatory in sermons these days as our earthly representations of fathers give worse and worse connotations to the title. There's a lot that could be said about that. But can I just briefly say this morning that I get it? Trust me, I get it. But trust me, he's different. He's different. He's the father you want. He's the father you need. He's the father who says, though your earthly father and mother forsake you, I will take you in. The Father who knew you before you were even conceived and knit you together purposefully and perfectly in your mother's womb. The Father who gave you the undeserved right of adoption into his family. The Father who, with the same love he had for his children of Israel in the Old Testament and the book of Hosea, now loves you as his child and wants to teach you how to walk and take you by the hand and lead you and bends down to provide for you who calls you out of bondage to be his beloved child. The Father who wants life to the fullest for you, life eternal, and who sent his only begotten son and sacrificed him to purchase it for you. That's the Father we're talking about. And when we realize that that's who he is, and when we realize that that's who we are, then that word that I used in the outline for the how of prayer intimately will begin to make sense. Did you know that there's no evidence, I discovered this this week researching, there's no evidence of anyone before Jesus using this term Abba or, or any of its equivalents in another language to address God before Jesus. He started that. And, and it really is better translated daddy. It's this intimate familial term for a young child for their, for their father. Do we pray that? Is that how we pray? That's, that's, I, I'm going to let that be our final take-home question and, and challenge this week. Seriously, let that be a challenge to you. Try addressing God as daddy in your prayers this week. It might seem unnatural at first. It might seem even irreverent. But just remember, Jesus instructs us to do it. And most of us, myself included, have probably sold ourselves short for a long time now on the intimacy that God longs for with us, that he died for to share with us. I'll end with this. I might feel honored if you guys started calling me the right Reverend Duval. But I'll tell you, I sure hope that Ellery never does.
I'm serious. I, I hope that she never calls me that. I hope that she never calls me pastor. Will. Ugh. She better not do that. <laughs> Listen, I don't even want her to call me father. I don't even want her to call me dad. My prayer is that she always calls me daddy. Daddy. Let's pray.